Welcome to the Farmers Weekly Podcast. This episode recorded on Friday the 19th of May 2023. From the Farmers Weekly News Desk, I'm Johan Tasker. And I'm Hugh Broom. This week we take a trip to Ireland where livestock farmers are racing ahead of their UK counterparts when it comes to environmental footprinting. We find out why a Hampshire farmer is planting trees across the middle of a wheat field. We've all the latest commodity prices, including a special look at the fertiliser market. And we visit one of the first UK farmers to measure methane emissions from his sheep. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. But first, this week saw farmers and farm leaders, including Caleb from Clarkson's Farm, attend a Downing Street Farming Summit. The Prime Minister had promised to host the event during his leadership campaign last summer. Ahead of the summit, the government committed to a range of policies, including a review of the horticulture and egg supply chains. And this, along with the change to international trade policy, was something welcomed by NFU President Manette Batters, who attended the summit. We desperately need an investigation into the supply chain, both for eggs uh, and the horticultural sector. You know, there's, there's real agreement, I think, that you know, the trading model is not working. We're not getting a fair return back to the farm gate, and we're seeing contraction on the back of that. There's also commitment to not merge the Great Educate Adjudicator with the CMA. That, again, is significant, because had it been merged, it would not have been able to do what it has done. It needs to be truly independent and stand alone. There were further commitments on trade. I mean, Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister has taken a completely different approach on trade. The Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership deal, that was due, under Liz Truss's time, that was due to open negotiations at 100,000 tonnes on beef opening. What they've ended up with now is a concluded deal uh, of 13,000 tonnes. Now, Canada would have just filled uh, 100,000 tonnes in a heartbeat, and I think we would have ended up with a fully liberalised deal. So you, you have got you know, clear recognition there that this is a different approach to trade, and I'm, I'm very confident that Mexico and Canada bilateral discussions will be a different approach. National Sheep Association head Phil Stocker told us that whilst he welcomed the government's change of position on trade deals, he thought the move was too little too late. It does seem a little bit ironic that they've made that statement about protecting the sensitive sectors and not signing up to trade deals that are going to damage our own production here in the UK so quickly after having just signed off the New Zealand and Australia trade deal. Of course, those two are probably those two nations are two of the the largest um, agricultural exporters in the world, you know. So it does seem a little bit ironic that we got those commitments just a little bit too late, possibly. I think the government would say that they built some of those protections in within um, the Australia-New Zealand trade deal. We wouldn't agree with that at all, and we don't feel that those protections are anywhere near strong enough. So you do wonder whether those commitments can be really uh, believed, I guess. Ministers also made commitments at the event to review planning policy that's been blamed for holding back rural growth. This was welcomed by CLA President Mark Tufnell. I've been pushing all along for ways to improve farm income uh, and income within the rural economy. So I was very, very pleased to see that the government is going to look at the planning barriers for farm diversification including any necessary changes to permitted development later this year. On top of that, they say they're going to 
have a launch, a call for evidence to understand the best way to address barriers that farmers and land managers face in delivering projects. Now, my question going forward from there is, why do you need a call for evidence? We've all given evidence to show that planning is a barrier. One aspect that has come out is that they proposed to revise the national planning policy to look at ways of supporting levelling up of economic opportunity across all rural areas. And so for the CLA, that would be a very big win. The government has picked up on a key message that we have been putting to government for many, many months now. That's CLA President Mark Tufnell. So Hugh, you suggested last week that we might see Caleb Cooper from Clarkson's Farm on the steps of Downing Street. We did. Uh, well, yeah, we did. We saw him on the steps of Downing Street, and you'll see in the magazine this week. There's the most wonderful picture, which has obviously had been has been thought about by the Downing Street comms team. They've been planning this picture for ages, and in the picture, it shows Caleb Blessham has combed his hair and ironed his hair and put his best shirt on, and Charlie Ireland's there in his posh suit, not just his normal, you know. Um, on farm sort of shirt with a tie and then Rishi's sat in the middle oh and bless them they're sat on straw bales in the garden of Downing Street with Business Connect banners underneath I mean you couldn't make it up so yeah you know they've got all the photo ops and and obviously Downing Street has 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 logged in to the fact that uh, dear Jeremy's farming show has had such a huge impact which it has and credit to those guys that uh, he needed to be part of that. So yeah, Caleb and Charlie are in hanging out with Rishi in the garden at uh, at number ten. It's a beautiful thing, Johan. It's a it's a PR dream come true. Now uh, let's not be too cynical. I mean, this photo opportunity it has garnered more widespread publicity than it otherwise would have done had Caleb and uh, cheerful Charlie Charlie Island not been there. But apart from that, Hugh, any substance? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right, it has. And, and and whilst we can cynically sit there like cynical old hacks and go, ah, yes, it's probably a more exciting and interesting picture for um, Joe Average or, or Janice Average on the street than a picture, no disrespect at all, than of our dear NFU president or or of the head of the, of the CLA or whoever, who to most people, they don't know who they are. So, yes, it does done that, and it's put farming fair and square in the spotlight. So thank you, Prime Minister Rishi, for doing that. Um, in terms of substance, now there's the tricky one. There is a lot of promises here, Johan. There is a lot of, we're going to look at this, we're going to have a look at that. There's certainly been definitely, and I think as Manette says, you know, there's definitely been a change of track in this Rishi government when you're talking about free trade agreements, um, talking about negotiations and that sort of stuff. So I would say a more protect not so much protective but certainly recognizing the importance of of homegrown food versus just opening the doors to the rest of the world as rich's predecessor seemed to want to do um i think in terms of the actual nuts and bolts what's in there i think for me the standout thing and you heard uh mark tufnell from the cla allude to it this talk around planning looking at planning you know what can rishi do on the street that will affect farmers' bottom lines or, or, or their businesses or potential revenue opportunities in a short period of time other than giving out cash, which he's not going to do because you've already got that subsidy framework there. And it's this idea around revisiting what happens in the planning world, 
whether you extend the permitted development privileges for agriculture to include, you know, farm shops and all that sort of thing, obviously very topical with the Clarkson thing. They've asked for a call for evidence, you know, and the CLA quite rightly have said, hey, mate, we've been giving you a call for evidence for the last 10 blooming years on this. And the other thing I think which is interesting is the talk around looking at the sort of, you know, making sure that the levelling up agenda really looks down and looks hard at what's happening within the rural economy as well. So some big promises, Johan, but the proof of the pudding will, of course, be on on any delivery that actually happens in, in the real world as opposed to in the sat around on straw bales looking happy on a Tuesday morning Downing Street garden world. A lot of these uh, promises, Hugh, they're going to take a while to come to fruition. Is there anything that's going to make a difference to farm incomes in the next six weeks or even six months? No, I don't think there is. Um, I think, look, credit where credit's due. The Prime Minister promised to do this conference. Uh, the NFU, fair play to him. Manette challenged him. Let's have a conference, showcase food and farming or, or, or have a summit. And if you remember at the time of the leadership election last August, everything was on fire, wasn't it, with regard to the impact of Ukraine, ag inflation, yada, yada, yada. Now we've delivered it, obviously some months later than than last August, but it's we're here, we've done it. So credit to the NFU for getting the thing, the ball rolling. In terms of actually delivering on the ground, no, your life is not going to change tomorrow. Anyone that thought the Prime Minister or, or thought the farming leaders, including Caleb and Charlie, were going to walk out of uh, number 10, having rewound the BPS uh, back to 19 or 2015 levels and we're all going to live happily ever after uh, is deluded quite frankly because that isn't going to happen i think what it has done though is definitely put a marker in the sand and i think here's the really important reason why there's an election coming johan and the fact that you know rishi has said we will review um the planning laws do a call for evidence on planning to see how we can better help farmers diversify their businesses looking at the competition stuff around the egg market we know the dairy bill is likely to get through parliament this year uh, the good news around the markets uh, authority not swallowing up the groceries adjudicator and credit to the nfu for lobbying on that one so there's these things that are tangible that will long term have an effect but i think these promises these these policy promises let's hope get swept up in the world of general election manifestos, which is soon to be upon us as we head into next year. Because if one party, the party in power, is saying they're going to do X, Y, and Z, you would hope that the party that's vying for power is going to do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, and D. And so really push up the competition, really push this stuff into the spotlight, and we might ultimately long-term see some action. So nothing's going to happen in the short term, but I think what it definitely does is it shines a spotlight on where you know the next set of farm reforms needs to go and what needs to happen going forward in the future. Hi, I'm Julie from KWS. I want to introduce you to a new hybrid oilseed rape, KWS Granos. It's a high-yielding variety with excellent autumn and spring vigour, a key characteristic in growing a successful crop. KWS Granos has good resistance to light leaf spot and turnip yellow virus, both of which can be yield robbers. In independent trials for verticillium, it has shown excellent tolerance. KWS Granos has pod shutter resistance, another trait to ensure a secure harvest. Time of drilling is vital to get successful establishment 
so early seed availability is crucial. We have good supplies of overyeared seed to cover market demand. To find out more about this exciting new variety, visit our website kws.com. The Farmers Weekly Podcast. Now, the way auction marts operate has changed a lot in the last few years. COVID created some huge challenges for the industry, and as a result, the use of online bidding has increased. Recently, a delegation of UK auctioneers visited the Republic of Ireland to meet with colleagues over there. One of the delegation that headed to Kilkenny was Scott Donaldson, who's the Managing Director of Harrison and Hetherington in Carlisle. I spoke to him earlier and I started by asking him about the recent changes to the marketplace across the Irish Sea. Since COVID, and they, they, were, they were obviously seriously affected by COVID as well, um, the, the swing towards online live bidding has been quite substantial. And it's very evident when you're, if you attend auction markets in the Republic that uh, that's a major part of their commercial business, not just pedigree like, like we tend to use it for over here. And, 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 and does that change, uh, I mean, does it change the makeup of the market, the, the, the type of people that attend? or and, and does it have an impact, do you think, on the value, on, on the prices, because they've got that many more people bidding? In comparison to the values that we are achieving over here, I don't think there's a huge difference. They're maybe slightly behind in some categories, even slightly ahead of, in others. But uh, it, the whole dynamics of the sale changes actually slows things down a little bit and uh, and the combination of a live bidder for for instance prime sheep or um rearing calves uh, combined with an online bidder is a, is a bit of a strange mix it's different selling pedigree bulls or dairy cows or machinery but when you're dealing with something you know that it, the environment in which we sell store cattle or prime sheep is a very fast moving environment where speed and momentum is quite important to the success of the sale in Ireland that just doesn't seem to have that speed and momentum but to be fair the values they're achieving are probably probably on the mark and in, and what other challenges did they tell you that they were facing I mean, there's been some big changes to their to their market dynamics there less beef more dairy um, and presumably more environmental pressure yeah, that that was one of the sort of one of the main things that uh, I took from the visit. Really, I mean, in that that kind of south uh, east area of, of of the republic, we you know we were in Kilkenny, but Cork is uh, is much the same. Um, big swing from beef to dairy. Um, they they have one or two things that have changed the dynamics of farms. If you let land, if you lease land for uh, for five years out there, uh, that the income from that that agreement is tax-free in Ireland. So, you know, for some smaller farms that are less viable um, as, a, as a business on their own, it's been quite attractive to let land to bigger, more progressive neighbours. Um, so that, that was one thing that, you know, they wouldn't like to see that introduced across here, to be honest. And then the other thing, uh, um, their milk price hasn't sl- slipped as much as ours. Um, dairy is still very, very prominent and, and there's a lot of guys building sheds and improving systems. We were at a farm with 350 dairy cows there. They were building new sheds and a big new rotary parlor going in. So there's a big investment going in. And they're very, very positive about the future for dairy out there, even though the numbers have increased massively. The other thing that uh, that was qu- quite um, 
interesting when discussing with them about the future of beef, for instance. They're introducing a, a, a basic a subsidy or support system for suckler cows based around um, and genomics and um, genotype. Uh, and they'll be scoring the cows and scoring the bulls. And if you get a five-star cow, you get the top subsidy. And it could be up to €150 Euros per cow for the first 20-odd cows. And then after that, it's €120 Euros a cow. Um, and then you get so much a calf registered that's by that breeding. So there, and that's all tied into environmental benefit, you know, so reducing carbon footprint, methane output, that sort of thing all around this genomic and uh, genotyping that they're going to do, which is uh, very interesting, very interesting. We've got some catching up to do on this side of the water. Um, In terms of within the UK context, uh, and you and your colleagues, I mean, the challenges going forward, I mean, they're the same. Um, Do you see any, I mean, presumably the trend away from suckler beef continues wherever you are in the UK at the moment, doesn't it? And that must continue to be one of your biggest challenge in terms of, making sure you've got the right amount of commission coming in when you want it. Definitely, yeah. And and, and the areas, I mean, t- discussing with uh, with you know, colleagues in the industry and in different areas of, of the UK where, you know, we are lucky here in, in, in the west of Cumbria where we've got, uh, you know, we're surrounded by dairy farms, southwest Scotland, going down into Lancashire and Cheshire, not too far down the M6. There's still a, a large number of dairy cows, which which still creates that income for the markets on this side and that, and that M6 corridor. Uh, you know, we've still got a, a fair lot of income from, from not just from dairy cattle, but from the beef cattle that they produce. We are fairly lucky from that point of view. But our neighbours on the east of the country, where the suckler cows are disappearing fast, they're looking at their income dropping. You know, every month, um, and and that's quite alarming. And that's. The critical mass thing is going to become quite an issue because you can't run a market with small numbers. There's a massive investment in these markets now, and if the numbers drop below a certain you know, a certain level, it's difficult to just to make sure these uh, these uh, companies remain viable. Really, that's Scott Donaldson from Harrison and Hetherington in Carlisle. So, Hugh, Irish beef producers are they really ahead of the UK? Well, I think they are ahead of the UK because there's a recognition by government and the government's worked out what it thinks are the right metrics to be able to gauge the efficiency of a suckler cow buy. And the fact that their payment schemes are going to be linked to how efficient the, uh, you know, what you get is based on how efficient the genomics show that your suckler cows are and all the other metrics. Um, yeah, I think they're really going to town on this and they realise that they've got to sort it out um, you know, I suppose to eff- effectively to sort of tick all the boxes when it comes to getting out there in the marketplace as they are, because you know, bear in mind, Irish, well, the Irish beef producers are, are, are big exporters of beef. That's where the bulk of the product goes. It goes mainly into Europe. Uh, and the UK, and we're going to have to up our game, I guess. Yeah, I think we do. And the tricky thing is trying to work out, and it'll be interesting to look further into this to see what metrics they've actually based this on, because clearly there's a lot of debate about, you know, do you use this metric, that metric, this methodology, that methodology? Um, They've clearly bottomed it out. And I suppose the other thing it shows as well is how important um, you know, agri-exports are to the Irish economy, a hugely important sector within the Irish economy, hence why, why they're really pushing ahead with this. Fence is renowned for durability, reliability and low cost of ownership. And with our full range available with Fence extended warranty and flexible, affordable solutions from Agco Finance, there's a Fence for every situation. To find out more, contact your local dealer or head to Fent.com. It's Fent because we understand agriculture. 
the Farmers Weekly Podcast. You are indeed listening to the Farmers Weekly Podcast. A very warm welcome wherever you happen to be listening to us from. Hopefully it has dried out a bit. Hopefully you have cracked on and got a bit of maize in the ground. If you're drilling maize, uh, we've been drilling maize here this week, which is good news. Uh, It's dried out. Still some very wet ground around though, Johan. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, you can. It is podcast at fwi.co.uk. That's podcast at fwi.co.uk. Emails this week. Johan. Email so sweet, Hugh. Any regular listeners will know we've been talking about the cost of living and especially food prices over recent weeks. Email from friend of the podcast, Tim Evans from Ashstead in Surrey. Tim writes, my perception is that food is more expensive in France than it is in the UK, but housing is cheaper in France and house price inflation is less because it's not perceived as an investment and lots of people rent. French people are willing to spend a greater proportion of their income on food than the British because Brits spend so much more on rent or mortgages. That's the product of historic tax policies, says Tim. It will be difficult to square and far beyond the wit or imagination of DEFRA. <laughs> it's certainly beyond DEFRA's thing. The other thing with France, yeah, and they've got more space, haven't they? I mean, they've got like, you know twice the space we have with the same number of people so it makes building things a bit easier but uh, yes he's quite right in what you're saying i suppose people's proportion of household income spent on food uh, is uh, yes it is probably less here than it is in france i suppose they have a more diverse they have a more diverse market as well don't they yang they still got nice smaller independence whereas we don't have say for example on butchers i know when i went on a trip to paris years ago a meat trip um, it was uh, amazing the amount of butchers, the, the, the national figure on the number of butchers they still have in France is huge. Uh, but that's a cultural thing, and it's a good thing for them. And, and you know, they, they enjoy doing it here. We're just obsessed with price, aren't we? Whatever level of the market you're at. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, for some people, house prices are, are, are so expensive that uh, by the time you've paid your mortgage, you can't really go out and uh, afford to eat out or spend much money on food, can you? Well, not at the moment with all the uh, with all the rate rises that keep kicking. Another one the other day. Um, the, but then, as a proportion though of what we spend, yeah, we spend what is it eight to eleven percent of household incomes in the UK now spent on on food. Uh, compare that to the late sixties when the figure was close to forty percent. I suppose people were spending less on houses and more on food because food was more expensive because we were more inefficient at producing it then. And also, we had a retail price guarantee in then, which they abolished in the early 70s or mid-70s, which totally changed the face of the food market um, because people could price food at whatever prices they wanted. They didn't have to go by a sort of government directive, uh, which they used to. So lots going on there. But yeah, it's a big debate that will go on ultimately. But then if you build more houses, Johan, and uh, the price of houses goes down, how does that affect people's equity long term? And does it leave them with even less money to spend on food? I don't know. It's a tricky one, isn't it? It is indeed, Hugh. It is indeed not one we're going to solve on the podcast, not on this podcast anyway. In the magazine this week, Crop Watch, Anthony Wade sees the latest chemistry being tested by Septoria. Marion Self says the fungicide bill on some crops is eye-watering. Jamie Swift is looking at sclerotinia protection in oilseed rape. And Mary Munro reports Orn's emerging on winter barley crops. Also in this week's magazine, Abby Kay, it's a very good article about is the future lab meat? Uh, I don't think it is. Uh, the article is very informative and begs the question. So it's fine doing all this stuff, but you've got to grow it somehow. And all the stuff that it grows on has to be grown somewhere. So is the future or is it just a load of people trying to get investors 
lured in by this utopian dream of not having any animals and everything being wonderful environmentally, or so they think, and therefore uh, they're protecting it like mad because the amount that's been invested is so huge. Don't know. Anyway, really good article uh, by Abby on uh, Is the Future Lab Meat? Cover story this week, Hugh. All Seed Rape Special, a guide to companion cropping, new varieties and disease resistance. Kicks off with a story looking at how a new drill and companion crop are leading an oilseed rape comeback. Companion crops can ward off cabbage stem flea beetle damage on oilseed rape and also earn you a payment under the Sustainable Farming Incentive. And David Jones finds out all about that in Gloucestershire. Debbie James does a very good double-page piece about health and safety uh, as we think about harvest and all the bit. Well, not just uh, harvest, harvest. Obviously, silage is starting now. Uh, things getting busy on farm. Also, do uh, a little plug, and there may be some going on in your area, but certainly there's some going on in my area down here in the south. Uh, the NFU are running a whole load of health and safety briefing days for people to take their whole teams along to uh, to get people thinking about safe uh, sensible operation pro operation uh, as we head into what is as ever and already has become a ridiculously busy time of year on the farm in the letters section i think this is worth a sec- uh, worth a mention here we don't usually mention things like this but uh, there's a nice letter from ashley cooper in essex who thanks david richardson norfolk farmer broadcaster farmers weekly columnist of course, who has just retired, written his final opinion piece in the 5th of May issue of Farmers Weekly. And Ashley says, for the past 50 years or so, David has been one of agriculture's greatest advocates and ambassadors, and his career has embraced both written journalism and TV programmes about farming. Rather like the late Sir Henry Plum, he's become a grand old man of British farming, experienced, practical and grounded. And Ashley says that David's column have always entertained and contained wise and often prophetic words and stimulating thoughts. So David Richardson, thank you very much for everything. And that's in the letters section of this week's magazine. Uh, thank you indeed, David. That is quite remarkable, isn't it? Over 50 years of writing cards. Look, back in the 2000s, when I wrote a column for Farmers Weekly, and I used to do this bi-weekly column, so that's every other week, and, and think of, oh, 600 wacky words that's going to entertain everyone. David was banging out every week across the page from me, just consistently, I mean, and, and has done so ever since. I mean, it is a remarkable achievement and, and one to be so proud of. And, and the fact that we have had the benefit of his wisdom over the these years so sad to see he's retiring but equally something to be celebrated because it is some challenge i can tell you uh trying to come up with 600 uh different words every week it's not easy i can tell you so david thank you very much we salute you uh, livestock section page 42 forage mixtures for overwintering cows behind electric fences uh, is a good little feature there in the livestock section edited by judith tooth well worth a view if you're opening and when you open this week's farmers weekly magazine right here that's it uh, for this week's magazine before we sort of hand over to the markets i think it is worth mentioning we covered the small robot company a couple or three weeks ago saying that they needed 1.5 million pounds to uh to, to basically survive after a major investor withdrew funding. I'm pleased to say that the small robot company has managed to raise through crowdfunding £1.5 million. It's not out of the woods just yet, 
but it has secured its short-term future. So well done to uh, to the small robot company and everybody who who uh, parted with some cash to keep them uh, on the road towards automated agriculture. But for now, Hugh, the markets, what's happening? Thank you very much, Johan. The finished steer deadweight average continues to climb yet again, almost another penny on this week, 493.4. Uh, the live weight average drops back ever so slightly at 274.9. To the sheep rings, uh, prices continue to firm there as well, particularly on the deadweight side. The SQQ uh, deadweight this week, 671.5. That's up a couple of pence on the week. The live weight's edged back uh, 20p or so, 276.9. Arable markets uh, just slightly firming, uh, but not really changing too much, apart from all seed rape, as you'll find out in a minute. Feed wheat, 180 pounds 40 uh, so that's gone up there uh, just over a pound the milling wheat is up a pound exactly 249.60 feed barley 164 pounds 40 uh, that's changed by 10p 10p stronger this week all seed rate though has come back quite a bit was 34.750 last week this week 33190 uh, feed peas 234 stand on feed beans 228 also standing on no change there at all diesel price you'll be pleased to hear has dropped another couple of p this week uh, 66.53 is your average liter of diesel uh, that's back from 68.10 last week compare that to a year ago when the average is 102.5 so it's all looking good isn't it right now let's talk about fertilizer uh, we're expecting fert prices new season fert prices to be released imminently in a matter of days Joining me now is Josh Jershim, who's the Fertiliser Procurement Manager at the AF Group. So, Josh, um, here we are just about to embark on another fertiliser season. The last fertiliser season has been uh, pretty dramatic. Um, Are things as dramatic at the moment or is it a fairly steady market, would you say? I don't think we'll hope hope we'll ever see anything quite like last year. Um, I think we can pretty much certainly say that we'll start off a little bit uh, less dramatic as last year with prices that we're a little bit more comfortable with. Um, on the flip side, last year, when things were kicking off around 6.30, 6.35, the wheat price was starting with a late two or even a three. So that's the other caveat. Um, obviously, the wheat price is now sort of around much sort of more reasonable levels where you normally expect it, um, but thankfully fertiliser is as well. So hopefully we'll start off um, as a bit more of a level season, new season. Um, but with the world we're in, with the geopolitical issues in key fertiliser manufacturing countries and, and obviously grain exporting countries, you never really can second guess what's going to happen in the world. <laughs> no, exactly. You never know what's around the corner. So no. give us a, I mean, a t- today's price is now where, well, I mean, what's ammonium nitrate at the moment? Um, what's the spread on that at the moment? Yeah, yeah. So you, you're sort of floating sort of 10 to 15 pounds each way around 400 at the minute, depending on what you want, um, which, you know, up until in terms of ammonium nitrate about January time, you were still looking at 700. So that's quite a dramatic drop off um, in the season where people have needed top uploads. So uh, obviously the, the vast majority of stuff was bought around 6.30. Um, anyone who couldn't take storage till later was probably around 700. So yeah, you're sort of 40% less, aren't you, than where, where a lot of people bought. Um, so yeah, where it'll start, who knows? Um, I think it, I think it's fairly fairly safe to say it'll start with a three the new season price um in terms of an but 
how far along that scale of starting with a three we'll we'll have to wait and see uh, and in terms of availability of product obviously obviously one of the big um reasons that things went mad last year was because obviously the gas price manufacturing was just blown apart all over the place because they had plants that either stopped or they were running but at limited amount would you i mean do you get the vibe now that sort of global stocks are are, are back to where they ought to be hence why the price is so low obviously we've seen the gas price fall as well so have those manufacturers caught up do you think with manufacturing now they've had a lower gas price um, I, I don't think we're quite where where we were sort of certainly pre pre Russian invasion levels. Um, there's certainly a lot more sites that are back online, um, but in terms of European availability, the obviously pre pre war you would have the Russian material coming from Russia into Eastern Europe, um, and then the Eastern European material like Poulans, Lithans, making their way over into Western Europe. So. Um, there's still obviously that lack of availability because of trade sanctions on Russian material. So, you know, that shift of product east to west across the continent isn't happening in the same levels as, as it was. Um, so obviously a lot of that Eastern European stuff is being kept for domestic markets um, and then any surplus is being sold to the highest bidder. So that is kind of where we're at at the minute. It's obviously new seasons running relatively strongly on the continent. Um, prices are going up. I think they're already on sort of July deliveries have sold out for, for May and June. Um, and, and prices are reflecting you know, the, the values are increasing. So obviously with French and German, et cetera, new season being a few weeks earlier than ours, um, that product can be sold at potentially a better price elsewhere than the UK. So we'll have to wait and see. I mean, I think a lot of it in terms of a new season will depend on how aggressive CF are, um, whether, you know, that, that, remaining stock or available stock that is there whether that can be sold competitively into the uk or if the if the exporters say oh no well we'll we'll keep it to to sort of other european markets really and 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 i was going to ask about the cf question so they because they've been bringing ammonia liquid ammonia in from the us haven't they to 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 effectively manufacture the product here and that that's still going on that process presumably yeah i believe so yeah i believe they're still importing their ammonia yes so they're um yeah, being able to import it rather than make it yourself is 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 adding quite beneficially to their their cost. yes because they're obviously benefiting from the cheaper U.S. gas price yes. uh, in the manufacturing process. So yes. so presumably that what that AF function or that factory function does this season will, as you say, have a big bearing um, on on where the UK market sits, whether they produce a good a good amount for the UK market or whether they throttle it back slightly just to keep the price where they want it at that sweet spot, plus yeah. export potential. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they'll they'll certainly have options available to them. Um, and they'll just have to gauge, obviously, versus urea. Um, obviously, new season urea price has been out for quite a while, so there's quite a potential that a lot of that's been covered. So they potentially don't need to worry too much about competing with that. And realistically, I think urea today puts spot night spot an sort of late 290 somewhere around there so that probably is going to be certainly the lower end of their expectation so it all depends really on how aggressive they want to be um and and how keen some of the exporters um are to to sort of match that and if there's volume available to do so that's josh jerkin the fertilizer procurement manager at the af group the farmers weekly podcast
Now, a Hampshire farmer has planted trees in rows across the middle of a 10-hectare wheat field. Andy Basin of Newhouse Farm near Winchester believes the agroforestry project will bring long-term benefits. There are 400 trees out here in total. We were talking about putting IPM strips in some of the bigger fields, wildflower strips, so actually it made sense if you're going to do that to then have something growing in them as well, something to take an income from as well. So that's the kind of plan. So we've got walnuts on the end, the, the row of walnuts, half a row of walnuts are pretty much all gone, they've not made it. We came through the drop when we planted, we came through the dry spring that we've had for a long time. So I'm amazed that any of these are taken, actually. So that combined with the, with the, um, the deer pressure that we've got, but blossoms are starting to come now. So hopefully in a couple of weeks, we'll see a lot more blossom. And we're just going to have to go with it. It's just going to be a really fluid thing and see, you know, we'll replant next year when we know what's, what hasn't made it, we'll fill in the gaps uh, and, and just keep going with it. But it's a system, you know, it's not impacting on the arable at all. I mean, Sam does the spraying, you know, it's, it flows nicely. The only thing we've got to watch out for, obviously, is drift, which you'd have to watch anyway, you know, with drifting onto other crops. So we have to be mindful of that. Oilseed rape we had in here last year, it suddenly dawned on us that actually when you've got an oilseed rape crop up here and actually you want to desiccate it, you know, there's a potential there for a lot more drift and, and conflict with the, with the apple trees or pear trees. So we might have to be mindful of that. Maybe no, no glyphosate on the rape, I don't know. But all these things sort of keep coming to us and we have to kind of keep thinking about what we're doing. But for me, it's about seeing what impact, you know, this system has on the arable crop, on the biodiversity around it. Reading University are going to do, a, they've got a PhD student starting to study these now. So she's going to come and monitor this over the next five years to see what impact it is having. Um, yeah, and going forwards um, with the produce, like it to be a, a, a village thing where we get the local community out, they help us pick apples, they take away the apples that they want, you know, and we, we keep the rest. That's the kind of thing. We've already got a market with our meat boxes. We've got an email, you know, names and addresses. So whether it's apple sauce to go with the pork, it's uh, cider, apple juice, pear juice, whatever, you know, there's potential there. We've got a bottling plant up the road. One of our tenants has got a bottling plant already in situation. He's bottling and making a, a, a plum-based liqueur. So that's all kind of there. So that's kind of where I think we'll, we'll end up. Or maybe just selling the apples to a third party to make cider from or whatever. But, you know, we've got to get there first. But that's kind of where I see we're, we're heading. I kind of think going forward, I don't ever see this being rolled out across the whole farm. But what I do see is if it works, we can pick up this model and put it sort of you know, quarterly across the farm so see, you know, to sort of bring it into other areas of the farm. Who knows? That's Andy Basin of Newhouse Farm. So Johan, agroforestry, so this is basically, again, it's this thing about planting uh, strips of trees amongst strips of arable crops, yes? That's exactly right. And uh, Andy Basin, who you heard in the audio there, he has planted strips of trees across uh, 10 hectares of a wheat field. It's taken about 0.8 hectares out of production. He's hoping to see benefits there, but uh, he is facing a few challenges in terms of uh, deers nibbling away at those whips uh, some of them are going to have to be uh, replanted but he hopes to see the benefits uh, from doing that and those benefits can be enhanced productivity an increase in wildlife better soil health and uh, believe it or not uh, higher yields because uh, according to Stephen Briggs, who's a, a Cambridgeshire farmer who is well versed in agroforestry the trees sort of draw the water to the surface in times of drought and uh, and, and keep your wheat crop uh, flourishing and uh, deliver higher yields than otherwise might be the case. So uh, quite a few advantages, potential advantages anyway, from agroforestry. 
And and financially, do you think, for example, that drought protection and the increased yield that pays back versus losing the land to the trees? Does it? How, how typically wide are the are the strips of trees? The strips are probably a couple of three metres wide. Uh, they're on the 30 metre tram lines, I believe. This is very much an experiment for Andy. He's, uh, he's, it's trial and error. I mean, obviously, he's researched it. He's looking at it. It's a bit of a wait and see uh, situation. So it's, it's, it's not, um, I guess also here, it's a sort of a legacy project that the, that the landowner wants to leave something for future generations. So it's not all necessarily about, uh, financial gain. It's about the, the wider benefits as well. But to, to answer your original question, the jury is out at the moment as to whether, uh, any yield increase will offset the, uh, the, the, the drop in yield overall over the uh, 10 hectares or so um, because land has been taken out of production by the strips of trees. And is there anywhere, people interested in exploring this further, is there any sort of key resource or central resource that people can delve into to find out how to do it? You can, uh, there are a number of uh, places. Uh, the Woodland Trust, Agroforestry Benefits Nature, Climate and Farming, it says you can go to the woodlandtrust.org.uk uh, website. There's details there. Um, also, the Soil Association, soilassociation.org, they are uh, quite big on agroforestry, uh, looking at uh, the benefits and, uh, and ways of doing it. So there's a couple of resources there. Only 3% of the UK's farmland currently practices agroforestry do you know something that is even to me that sounds uh, a little bit high but uh, the soil association is working with farmers to achieve its goal of over half of uk farms having at least some agroforestry system in place by 2030 that is a big ambition but um good luck to those who who do it the people who are really into it and uh, i know a few of them say it's a, it's a fantastic thing and it really does deliver benefits Andy Basin himself, though, in Hampshire, he is one of the Farmers Weekly Transition Farmers. Uh, we are looking to try and secure a more sustainable future, both environmentally and financially, for UK farms as part of this transition project. And if you want to find out more about that, you can visit fwi.co.uk forward slash transition. <laughs> The Farmer's Weekly Podcast. And finally, a Hertfordshire sheep farmer has started measuring the methane output from his flock with help from Scottish scientists. Rob Hodgkins and partner Joe run 2,500 ewes, producing lambs for Tesco and breeding sheep through Kaipoi Romneys. Judith Tooth went along to find out more. So today we've got a methane testing emissions trailer in. So it's almost like, uh, if you can imagine, a, a flatbed trailer with 12 calf hutches on it, with some doors on it. Right. That's sort of what it looks like in stainless steel. 12 individual ones. We load up 12 sheep at a time, put each one in, in the individual calf hutch, for want of a better word, leave them in there for 50 minutes, record the gas content of that chamber at the beginning of the test and measure it at the end of the test, minus one from the other, and we can work out uh, what... What sheep, you know, which how, how many emissions each sheep is producing. So, why are you doing this? I believe there's a future in, in um, low emitting sheep. We have targets from the NFU uh, for 2040, we have national targets for 2050 for carbon neutrality. Tesco is one of my biggest you know, customers for my lamb, has a, a 2030 target that they want their stores and, and their company as a whole to be 
uh, carbon neutral. So whether or not you agree with the science or think it's a load of hooey, it's kind of irrelevant. If your market wants it, your union's demanding it, and your country is committed to it, you can either bury your head in the sand or you can kind of try and keep ahead of it and get, get, get busy. So how do you see this data that you're collecting? How, how do you see that helping your business? So this data for, for this year is purely a baseline. Um, what I know, how much... How much methane does it, you know, does a New Zealand Romney in the UK produce? And, and from that we can compare ourselves because we're using New Zealand genetics. We're using uh, a worldwide standard uh, data collection. So, you know, so the same chambers and the same protocols are in place in the UK, Ireland, New Zealand, and Australia. The sort of the, the, the four countries that are, that are doing this research. And from it we can compare ourselves across the whole globe, really, about how our how our sheep are doing. And we can also sort of piggyback on a lot of the, the research already done. So I'm not trying to reinvent what the New Zealanders or the Irish did five, two, three years ago. I can, I can build on what they're doing and hopefully sort of push the science forward a little bit. Sure. So you mentioned, you know, you've got New Zealand Romneys. You mentioned a lot of research that's happened there. But this... Um trailer that's come along today has come down from scotland it's come from scotland and it was imported from new zealand okay and so how have you how have you come to have so that here i've, I've come to I, I submitted an event uk uh project to sort of you know basically to say what we, what we said we, we we'd like to really start looking at methane emissions within the flock i think in 10 years time it's going to be a fairly significant player whether or not in terms of carbon audits that we can sell or in terms of one of the major supermarkets deciding to, to go down a combined regenerative, low-methane-esque sort of food label instead of a taste for difference or Tesco's finest. We have a, a low-methane or environmentally friendly or carbon sequestering model or, or some such like that. Something like that is going to appear in the next 10 years. Uh, the trouble we have with sheep is there's such a long time, look, generational interview, so they have a lamb, it has a couple of years before it really gets productive. So if you look at it at that stage, in 10 years, we've probably got three chances to actually start making a difference, which isn't long. Sure. Um, so, yeah, we, we applied for some funding, some, some sort of starter funding to try and, base, first of all, this, this year, baseline our flock, make sure we, we, you know, the science is robust and sound, make sure what we're doing is viable, and we're going to go back to Innovate UK and hopefully try and get a, another grant to really start, start a, a sort of multi-generational breeding programme to to hopefully follow where Ireland and, and, and New Zealand are, are sort of going with reductions of around 15 to 20% possible over sort of five to 10 generations. And uh, SRUC, which has brought down this equipment, I think this is the first farm that they're testing on in the UK? Yeah, this, yeah we're, we're, a, we're a test bet, yeah, a test bunnies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess someone's got to do Someone's got to be. <laughs> That's Hertfordshire sheep farmer Rob Hodgkins talking to Farmers Weekly's Judith Tooth. Interesting story there, Johan. Uh, yeah, trying to reduce your methane. Uh, presumably the starting place is get your genetics right, isn't it? It's a bit of a no-brainer, really. Um, good stuff. Uh, so uh, next week's Farmers Weekly podcast, Johan, what have you got going on? Next week, Hugh, we're hoping to take a bit of a look at this uh, landscape recovery scheme that's uh, the round two of funding has just been announced by DEFRA, more than 20 projects there farmers teaming up to look after the environment the wider landscape we're going we're hoping to visit at least one of those projects being funded by defra and presumably because they're in a big group and they're all joined up doing the same thing they get more for it do they 
That's right. More bang for your buck in terms of uh, public money, more benefits too, and uh, the joy and experience of uh, working with your fellow farmers and teaming up to deliver more widespread landscape scale benefits. Yeah, okay. It'll be interesting to hear what uh, what's what and uh, how much more they get. Um, I'm hoping to get down to uh, one of our small abattoirs just down the road from me uh, down in Sussex uh, and check out what's going on there and really discuss and look at the challenges that are facing the small abattoir sector, of which we know nationally there are very many. So we've got that to look forward to next week. Don't forget, if you want to get involved with the Farmers Weekly podcast, it's simple. You can can you just email us okay very simple podcast at fwy.co.uk that's podcast at fwy.co.uk it'll be fantastic to hear from you don't forget also uh, if you're up for doing a bit of podcast reviewing on your podcast platform uh, please do if you like it leave us a decent five-star review if you hate it put that on there as well uh, we're all fair we're all about fairness and equality here uh, so do that but in the meantime this has been for another week the farmers weekly podcast thank you so much for listening i'm hugh Brew. until next week goodbye and i'm johan tasker goodbye